Welcome to Mints on Air and Client Corner. Perspectives from founders, financiers, and friends. I am Josh Fox. In each episode of this podcast, I will be joined by an entrepreneur, an investor, or a member of the startup community. My guests will share their experiences in starting and running a business, investing in a business, and helping to support a business. I hope that my conversations with my friends will provide valuable advice to the audience, help those who are trying to build their businesses to make them successful, and inspire others who are thinking about starting a new venture. My guest today is John Edwards, an experienced CEO, executive chair, independent director, and senior advisor. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. Great to be here and look forward to the conversation. John, you and I have known each other for 15 years. We first started working together when you were the chief operating officer of AdNexus, which was sold to Bristol-Myers Squibb. Since then, we have worked together in your capacity as chief executive officer of Verso Therapeutics. And currently, we work together in your role as executive chair of Panther Therapeutics. To give us a sense of the types of businesses that you have worked with, can you describe each of those three for the audience? Yeah, I generally work with uh, early stage biotech companies. Um, these could be companies that are a couple of years before entering clinical trials, like Verso was, or companies through a phase one study, but not yet into later stage studies like Panther is. I also tend to gravitate to companies in the area of oncology or rare disease, but have had a chance to work across really a broad range of therapeutic areas. Your experience goes well beyond the examples that I provided. You have close to 40 years of experience in the life sciences industry. What's your perspective on the current state of the industry? Yeah, I mean, I, I realize at the moment it's, it, we're going through some tough times, but on a macro level, I feel our industry just keeps getting more exciting and promising over time. You know, despite the challenges we're currently facing, and it's, it's certainly disappointing to hear about the loss of jobs that are, being, that are occurring, I've seen this come and go many times, and the reality is there remains a never-ending need for better medical treatments, uh, which biotech industry can help address. And I've also seen whether the market is hot or not, there generally is money out there for great teams with, with programs that have solid data. That's good to hear, John. And my experience has been similar to yours in terms of which companies are able to raise capital, even in a difficult fundraising environment. What would you say has changed the most in the life sciences industry in your time? Yeah, I'd say you know, there's a number of different areas. In the early years, we're kind of, which, which were exciting, the pioneering years in the 80s, we were figuring everything out uh, as we went along from cloning to manufacturing to clinical trials. This created a significant layer of challenges as there were not, for example, established regulatory guidelines for much of what we were doing. And understandably, when you have something new, haven't been there before, the FDA and others are generally more cautious, which makes everything take longer. Despite those challenges, it was an exhilarating time to be part of the, the effort to really establish and develop a new class of drugs. I'd see another nice change over the years has been the talent pool that certainly now exists today to help not only build companies, but also develop uh, promising treatments. This enables a much more efficient and effective virtual workforce as you can pull in highly experienced consultants whenever needed without having to hire an otherwise large full-time staff. So this not only improves timelines, I think probability of success, but certainly also as well as capital efficiency. I guess, you know, there's probably lots of different things we could talk about, but the other one to just remember back on is, you know, when I got started and for quite some time, 
you know, academics and clinicians in hospitals considered industry the dark side. And it's pretty impressive where we are today, where you're seeing people jump around all the time out of academics, starting companies, starting those dark side companies themselves, as well as clinicians. You know, and really all of us working together realize by doing so, we really can increase the chance of really improving uh, the treatment of serious diseases. So there's been certainly lots of great changes to, uh, I've had a chance to witness uh, since the industry got started. Those are very interesting observations, John. I know we'll come back to some of those topics in the discussion later on the podcast. Right now, I want to focus on your role as chief executive officer. You've been the CEO of multiple companies. Can you talk about what is always similar for you? What's the constant in being a CEO of a biotech startup? Well, in terms of what's constant in terms of for success, I think about a number of different things. I think first and foremost, you must have a compelling, incredible lead program. I mean, again, just keep in mind, I'm dealing with earlier stage companies, not later stage. I mean, you know, where you have pipelines and lots of other considerations. I've certainly worked in pharma and late stage companies. But for the stage of companies I now work in, it's all about your lead program. And that lead program needs to be absolutely pressure tested with a very sober and transparent approach. No programs are perfect. They all have their issues. The question is, what are you doing about them? And how are you taking advantage of the opportunities? So that's first and foremost. You know, when I look at companies, what, what, tell me all about your lead program. And then right next to that is must do everything possible to create a work environment where employees feel motivated and valued. This is one, I love this topic, and uh, we could talk about this one alone. We could have a podcast on this this one alone. But the importance of just that, that the importance of people, as everyone talks about, but you don't need to talk about it, you need to do it. And then kind of maybe on a, a tangent from what I just said, is at the same time as a CEO, you need to be remind yourself, your job is not to be a people pleaser, but a company and product builder. So this may mean having the ability to respectfully disagree with your board or your team, you know, being willing to have that conflict. And it's obviously best if you could try to find ways to work together to address those differences. And no longer to my surprise, but for many years to my surprise, I consistently found and continue to find that this approach often results in a better outcome from what, let's say, I was thinking or the other party was thinking. And I'm actually glad I went through that. I'm glad I raised those tough issues or they'd raised those tough issues with me. Yeah, we really talked it through and I got, you almost always find we end up in a much better place. So lead program, great work environment, and, uh, and just avoid falling into the trap of trying to be a people pleaser. Bringing together the last two items on your list, John, I'd like to look at that in more detail. It, on, on the surface, it seems like there's a tension between those two. How do you motivate employees, focus on building the right talent pool in your organization, keep them incentivized to do the job that you brought them in to do? On the other hand, you talked about not being a people pleaser, disagreeing potentially with your team. How do you bridge the gap between those two concepts? I think we all, first of all, respect when your differences of opinion and when people see you know, I know this for other people. When I see that people really care, they're passionate and they care, and the, the disagreement is all about how do we develop a better company or a better drug, that's worth my time to have that discussion. And I think people find the same. You know, I think people, when they see that your goal, 
let's now put this back on me. My goal is not to advance my career or whatever. My goal is to help this company be successful, to help this drug be successful. And when you're in a team where you know that's true for the people sitting around the table, I find it becomes an extremely motivated environment because you're all just trying, you're all looking at things with your perspective, your past experience. And I think, you know, and part of that process is obviously listening, making sure you truly understand, you know, what is this other person saying? It may, may not seem right to me, but first of all, maybe there's, maybe they are right, or maybe there's some things that I need to be thinking about from their, bringing their perspective. How do we work with that? So I think, I think, you know, making sure as best as possible you have good listening skills. And I think when people see that you care, you care about them, you care about the company, and that goes a long way. I've been in a number of situations where it's been funny. I bet it was in one room once and um, the CEO, this time I was the chief operating officer of a company and the CEO was in there and the CSO in there and a new employee was in there, new senior employee. And we were having it out over a, a topic because everyone had different perspectives, you know, and uh, I thought it was just a, another good, great conversation. And I left the room and the person turned to me and said, oh my God, are you going to be fired? <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? And they were like, well, you guys were all going at it. And I was like, no, you know, this is, I mean, I don't know. I was trying to say well, how I felt about things and listen to how others did. And so, you know, that's the other thing. When you get people that really care, passionate, you know, maybe voices get raised here and there. But if you know, you're all kind of really trying to row in the same direction. I think it, you know, we all appreciate it. So yeah, it's one of those things. It's, it's tough to sometimes literally put in words until you're living it. But I found it's, uh, it's a very important thing. I know there was a, there was a study that impressed me years ago. I heard about during an off management offsite, just worked on at Sloan. And they asked the question for companies, for tech companies in particular, what are the common elements of the most successful management teams? And they came, found it came down to two things, high in respect and high in conflict. And I know the conflict is kind of a, one of those words like who wants conflict? But the more you think about it, you know, if you have a group that's just high in conflict without respect, that's a real problem. You have a group that's high in respect and there's no conflict, well, you kind of wonder what's going on. But that willingness to kind of have that constructive conflict. And I always, I always kind of appreciated that. And I also saw that reflected in what I found to be successful teams. So I think of that as, as you pointed out, you know, not being a people pleaser, that can result in conflict and who wants that? But again, if you approach it from a, a totally different angle, an angle of building a successful company, an angle of building a successful drug, I think people look at it differently. I know I do. That makes sense. It seems to me that it's all about the balance. You want to bring out the, the complicated facts, whether it be science or business, and work through it as a team. There's not always an easy answer to those questions, so it requires often challenging people, challenging ideas, but being able to do it in a respectful way and encouraging people to speak up and voice their opinion, I think, um, is is part of the part of the goal in those situations. No, and I think that that's the that's the other important part. So we do talk. I did talk from a CEO perspective about me voiding the trap of just trying to please everyone. But I think the other side of that, which is really really important, or the other component, is exactly what you just said, is on the employee side. You know, you don't want a bunch of people sitting around the room or just always agreeing with you on any given topic. Yes, it feels good, but it just can't. It's just not possible. And, and I've learned time and time again, I know when I have what I consider to be you know, excellent ideas, it's always amazing to me when I get really smart people around to look at my great ideas, how they make them so much better or they come up with a better idea. And, and I've, just, I've learned that lesson over and over again. So you do want to create an environment. 
you know, and I think that's part of also not being a people pleaser, but you want to create an environment that really bubbles up that, that conversation, you know, and to hear people out. And because even if you don't come, imagine you don't even come up with a better idea, but this was a concern on somebody's mind. You want to be able to address that concern so that they can go forward, you know, together with the team in a positive way. So, yeah, so it's, it's definitely an art, not a science, but it's something I definitely strive for is something really, really important. And to confirm, after the management team left that room, you were not fired. I was not fired. No, I actually got promoted shortly thereafter. <laughs> Good to hear. What would you say are the biggest mistakes that CEOs make? So I guess the, a common one I see in the younger companies, so these are companies, you know, they're going through a lot of stages. They're going from a research stage to then a development stage to maybe a going public stage. And those are some pretty big jumps. You know, it's not like, oh, we're taking on a new therapeutic area, which is a totally different thing. So I would say one of the toughest things is when they don't know that the company has grown or is about to grow beyond their leadership capabilities. And understandably, many take this as a personal attack and they've somehow failed. But in terms of some of the biggest mistakes they made is really not knowing when it's time to maybe say, hey, you know, we're coming close to a stage we need to reassess the leadership here. And that's just been a, maybe that's more of a company thing, but I've seen that in CEOs. I've seen that in people, junior people as well. So these CEOs did not fail. In fact, they succeeded in getting the company to be at a much better place than when they started. It just now takes an, another type of experience and leadership to move it forward. So that's, because I see a lot of, you know, those, like I said, those big step jumps from research development to IPO. And that's been one of the biggest challenges because it also kind of is a bummer if somebody feels that this is something that they can take on and then you see the struggle. Now, obviously, CEOs it's then who can then realize their own limitations, so let's take this in another direction, realize their own limitations and say, listen, you know, I don't, this is, I'm out of left field here and build and put their strong leaders and build a leadership team around them that can address those issues then yes, obviously that is a successful formula as well. But I think it starts with really looking yourself in the mirror and realizing where are my strengths? Where are my weaknesses? Where is this company going? And you know, can I be part of that or can I somehow otherwise address my limitations? You know, Because if you're at the point you're a CEO, you've accomplished a lot. You know, And the idea that you have all these limitations or limitations is probably not the first thing you're thinking about You know, because what got you there was a lot of success. Right. And you know, speaking of strengths and skills that CEOs need to have, from my perspective, and I think you're a perfect example of this, even when you're in a specific industry like life sciences, the, the science that each particular company is focused on does differ. The product candidate, the device, perhaps it's staged to some degree. Could you talk about how a CEO has to master the science of each new company that that person joins? Yeah. And I'm probably a poster child for this because I'm a chemical engineer with an MBA. Like there's no PhD, no immunology, you know, all this stuff. So, you know, for me, that's something I have to deal with on, on a regular basis. And so I'd say, you know, for me, what's worked really well is first of all, you know, obviously I spent a lot of time reading in the background, trying to under make sure I understand the area, but talk to the smartest people you can find, ask lots of dumb questions 
It's amazing to me. It happened to me the other day. I was like, there was some acronym on a slide and I was like, oh my God, this is, I'm now in this new company. They're going to think I'm an idiot. I don't know what this means. And I said, what does this mean? And I think it was the CEO and another person said, I always wondered what that meant as well. You know? And so <laughs> it, I, I have to say at least half the time I ask the dumb question, it turns out, you know, there's a typo or, <laughs> or other people have the exact same question. But even if that was never the case, be willing to. And also, be, this is very true for me, be okay at annoying people because you just still don't understand something. I mean, I have had stuff explained to me and I have to go back, well, what did you mean by this? And what did you mean by that? And, and as a really pleasant surprise, I've come to learn that when people see how much you truly care about what they're doing, they're very patient and understanding. I have to say, I sometimes wonder if it's more patient and understanding than I would be, but it's really been remarkable to me how people are willing to sit down and take the time and answer your question and maybe re-answer your questions. And I've, I've really appreciated that. And it's been, again, it's, it's somewhat humbling or so, sometimes it's, you come into a company, you know, and they're bringing you in because you have all this expertise and then you start off by showing all the things you don't know, you know, but I just, that comes back to not being a people pleaser in a certain way as I just like, well, they're here, I have to make a difference and I'm only going to do that if I know what the heck's going on. And if that means asking a lot of these simple or dumb questions, and that's just what it is. Shifting gears to another role, or maybe a primary, if not the primary role of the CEO of a biotech startup, fundraising. So when you're out there pitching the science to potential investors, and you're trying to get them over the hump and get that term sheet in the door, what are the key points that you think are most important to get across and what leads to a successful pitch? Yeah. So, I mean, for a pitch, again, it's, uh, and anyone who works with me gets tired of hearing the words compelling, incredible, you know, but for, for a pitch, that's all, those are the two things I focus on. It needs to be compelling. And again, more compelling than all the other compelling things out there. Cause there's, there's a lot, which is wonderful. I'm, I'm glad there's a lot out there, but you need to be something different. And that needs to be backed up by credible data, you know, you can't just say, oh, this is worth $10 billion. Well, okay, show me why it is. I mean, so it needs to be, you know, it needs to stand on. And so that's kind of the net that's cast. And then what you don't know is what's going on at that biotech or that pharma company. You know, obviously you may know strategic areas they're involved in. Maybe you know a little bit more about some than others. But I found it's just good to go out there and start building those relationships, letting people know what you're working on. And I've seen things, Some of, one of my companies, we were not looking to sell the company and uh, it got sold by Merck while we were doing an initial early financing because they got, they got interested in it. That was not our intent. Our intent was to build a relationship with them and see where it went over time. In other cases, you go out there and you do what I said. And you know, in the case you mentioned AdNexus, and so we were having conversations with BMS and you know, we're building relationships. Yeah, three years later, they bought the company for you know, half a billion dollars. So my intent is usually just to go out there and, and with our pitch deck, let people know what we've got. And maybe, and again, it doesn't always have to be an acquisition. It could be some sort of license. It could be a program that they have that's synergistic with it. Literally listening to them and what, if they see a good strategic fit and certainly trying to make a pitch that, uh, you know, very clearly on what we can do and what our capabilities are. Moving from the investment transaction all the way to an exit event. You've been involved in many exits over time, but many entrepreneurs have never sold the company before. For those entrepreneurs, can you describe 
what the process is like. What should entrepreneurs expect when they ultimately sit down and go through that process of selling their company? One of the things to be prepared for is how are your investors going to feel? You may find some investors all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're worth twice as much or 10 times as much, you know, and whereas other investors on your board may not agree with that. And so often that is a pretty typical thing. You know, we're not getting what, what we're worth. So, you know, one of the things you need to manage up front is, hey, this just came in, you know, is this something worth considering? And have sitting down with your board and your investors and saying, okay, you know, we don't want to waste their time. We don't want to waste our time. What would work for us? What are we, what types of things? And again, you'll get differences of opinion, but at the end, you need to find a way with your board and your investors to align on what would work. And then I basically take my approach is to take that. And I don't obviously show that to the pharma company verbatim, but in language, not in numbers, you know, I try to convey the types of things that would be necessary. I said, listen, I don't want to waste your time here. We're really excited about your interest. You know, this would require, and I use some sort of narrative again, as opposed to numbers to see if if there's if this is worth pursuing. And you need to be okay that it's not. You know, you need to be okay that maybe there's a difference and you just need to develop your programs a little bit further to get the kind of cash investors want. Again, I think it's that's an important attitude to come in, not like, oh my God, I gotta sell the company at all cost. You know, start calculating how much you'd get. So that's kind of the process I go through. And obviously the other the other par- pat track to this uh, that we're not talking about is, you know, obviously it helps considerably if you have competition, you know, and so if you've been out there building those relationships, depending how quickly this goes, you know, you certainly want to let others know that, you know, things have amped up. You know, again, you want to wait though. You want to be careful here because you don't want to go to the world, oh, we're selling the company and, you know, there's not alignment with the board. You need to have some sort of confidence that this is something that truly could happen. Obviously it could fall apart, but, but have that level of confidence. And so with that, you know, you go out and you, you, so you be prepared to talk to others. So for CEOs that haven't been through it before, I think that 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 investor conversation is probably the most important one to have. And then making sure you're translating that in an effective way, not giving away your your position, but to pharma, and then dual tracking that. And then just being aware that there's a ton of work. And I don't know, depending upon where you're at in the company and how much time, this is going to be a ton of work working with people like like you, Josh, and working with many others, there's a lot of diligence. Be prepared also that the terms you negotiate as you after you sign the term sheet, if that's if you sign a term sheet, those terms tend to be modified over time, and it's a roller coaster. Uh, you will end up at the end feeling like, oh my god, you'll feel really. Hopefully, you'll feel very satisfied, but it's there's a lot of sheer panic that goes along in that during that path, and and uh, you know your job is to keep the ship going forward. If at some point it reaches an impasse where you clearly can't agree, again, that comes back to being a people pleaser, but maybe you're not a pharma pleaser and you have to say, I can't go forward with this. And I've done that. And uh, in every case I've done it, you know, I've done as many transactions as you, you know, usually you you find a path forward as opposed to having to cave on some sort of term. So those are just a, a few things that I've experienced. And what have you experienced on the BD side? You mentioned license deals earlier, so partnerships, collaborations. Compare M&A to BD. What are the differences in your experience? You know, how do those transactions progress in a manner that might be that's similar to M&A, but also contrast that to M&A? Yeah. I mean, M&A is just much more intense. I would say it's a lot more intense on, on every level. 
you know, BD is also intense. It's just not at the same level. And then the, the main thing I think about with BD, you know, obviously you're, you're, you know, what rights are you giving up and how does that impact the long-term value of the company? Are you giving up regional rights? Because then if a pharma wants to buy you later, oh, you gave up all these other rights, it can complicate things. So thinking through long-term, which, you know, not just the short-term gains, but in making sure you're, you know, the board and investors understand, okay, you know, and they usually do, they're usually pretty smart about these things, but just making sure you're all aligned on, okay, this has this short-term, this has this benefit, but down the road, you know, this may be some things that uh, we're going to have to deal with. So I'd say that's, that's certainly one of the differences. Then the other really important part is you want this, this depending upon the nature of the license, it's assuming that maybe it's an alliance, you want it to go really well. And so you need to make sure you have the infrastructure to support it. Once the deal's signed, you know, it's going to be an advertisement for your company. If, you know, <laughs> it's going to be a bad advertisement if you don't deliver. I mean, you know, and, and it's going to be a very good advertisement if you're, you know, people see you as a great group to work with. And in fact, that's how some of my companies ended up being sold is they started off as, as alliances. And then people go, oh my God, yeah, this technology is everything we thought. And these people are really impressive, you know? And um, so, Again, the goal wasn't to sell the company, but that's one of the things that happens if you do things right. So I would say I would have a full court press on making sure that whatever you're licensing, if there's any form of alliance that you've got the staff, you know, and you're going to meet those meet or exceed those milestones as best as you possibly can. And a milestone that you've been involved with um, 10 times, you've been involved in the development and commercialization of 10 FDA approved biologics, FDA approval. Could you talk about what you've learned about the process of FDA approval of a drug? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, again, like a, a number of the conversations we've had, it really kind of starts before that. And I would say, you know, really making sure that, you know, you've got as much buy-in to what you're doing, that you've spoken to them. Ideally, you know, I know these days in-person meetings are not happening as much, but really try for that and making sure ahead of time there's a lot of pre-wiring, and I would say this goes also to the EMA and other regulatory agencies. You've really thought this through, assuming you're doing a at least somewhat global effort. And there's alignment on what you're doing, and you know if this is the outcome you have, what the expected result is. And of course, the FDA and everyone says, as we would say if we were at the FDA, well, I need to wait to see what the data says, you know, because the data is never black and white, whether that's a safety, efficacy, or some other question. That's probably the most important thing. It's like all the work you do ahead of time before you, that gets you to that point. That's really, I think, the meat of it. And then, you know, if you, if your product delivers on the endpoint that you are going after, I think it's, I don't, it's never straightforward. You have to face the advisory committees and so forth, and you never know what can happen. And so those are all just about being extremely well prepared for all the objections, looking at, you know, when you get to that stage, looking at everything through a very negative lens. What are all, you know, cause you're, you know, you've all been drinking the Kool-Aid, you're psyched for your product, it achieved the result. Okay. Well, what if, you know, if, if you are going to look at this database, safety database, efficacy, et cetera, what are your concerns? What are your biggest concerns? And, and try to make sure you're well prepared for those because those can, strange things can pop up and you don't want it to derail something. So again, it, it, it's very situation. My answer would be very situation dependent, but those are the generalities. That's helpful. I want to work back to something earlier in the podcast that I said we would get to. I think at the time you said we could talk for, for a day or days about the talent pool and people and keeping them motivated. So thinking about your role as CEO, 
Could you talk about what you look for in candidates to begin with at the at the hiring stage? What I'd say I look for at that point is is the fit. And I really and this is again where the listening skills need to be really important. Like the person could be awesome interview with you, great. And you're like, oh my God, but how does your team feel? You know, when they interviewed this person, what does your HR person feel? Just they've often offered me some great perspectives. And so that's probably one of the more important things I say. I like to try to try to do as much as I can to make sure this person has the good uh, personality fit, if you will, their style. And again, you know, I want people that have diverse opinions, diverse thinking, et cetera. I'm not talking about that, but but how how do the how well do they play together? Because it's really important that we, you know, again, I don't mind that conflict as long as we're playing together. Right. And once you have brought a group of employees on. Obviously, you're always building a team. There are departures, new hires that you need to make either as a replacement or to grow. You're trying to make sure that people are all aligned on what the, the goals of the company are, trying to execute. How do you create the right environment to achieve the company's goals? Yeah. So, I mean, that's it's one of the things uh, I like almost a day one type of thing is First, I start with listening to try to understand, you know, where are we? Where are we headed? What is, what is, what are the current kind of vision? I take a look at, okay, are there some opportunities we can to improve that? Are there some things we should be looking at? Maybe we haven't. Maybe we've limited ourselves because we haven't had the money or whatever the reason may be. So I often sit down with the senior team and I say, listen, assume you have all the money you need. Let's not get too crazy, but all the money, what do we do? Because that, that limits, that takes off limitations, you know, because great ideas may percolate up then like, oh, well, if we had more money, I would do this. And we said, well, if that's a great idea, we should find a way to fund that. So I go through that as a process. I want to make sure before I do any sort of vision and values for the company, you know, I want to make sure I'm clear on, geez, what makes the most sense here? And that process in itself can help a lot. Again, realize I work in smaller companies, you know, could be five to 50 people. I'm not having to, you know, I've been, I've ran larger companies, but I have the benefit of small numbers in, the, in that sense of communications easier. And then with that, you need to make sure across the organization. And again, you want, you want lots of involvement. Um, you know, without involvement, there's no ownership. And, and I, it's just, I don't want people to be able to recite it. I want people to breathe it, believe in it, live it. And if they can't, I want to know about that because either it's a bad idea or we haven't explained it well. And so we got to figure out which one of those two it is. And to make sure everyone's behind it and everyone understands the direction we're going, they think, yeah, this is really cool. Um, and that comes back to be having a motivated group of people working for you and to make sure that they're well connected to how they're making a difference in this overall strategy and direction for the company. So I think it's a, you know, it's not posters. I mean, I'm not against having certain posters on the wall, but it's, it's about putting in the time. It's about meeting with people individually and as teams, listening to them and making sure at the end you know, you've got a whole team of owners. We're all owning this together and uh, moving things forward. And another role where you have to engage in that process to some degree is the role of executive chair. I know it's going to be different from when you're a chief executive officer, but you have been an executive chair or an executive chair. Some members of the audience may not be familiar with that role. Can you describe the primary purpose of that role, the focus that you have? when you are serving as an executive chair? Yeah. You know, I generally, typically come into companies that have uh, a scientific CEO leader. 
and they know the research side, what we talked about earlier. And so they're now, you know, either in or in the next year or two going to be in development. And so I can offer, and they may also have not have as much fundraising experience, financing experience, or BD experience. And so what I can come in and really offer that bench strength and offer that perspective of what it takes to to bring the company to that next level into development and all the financing and, and other things that go with it. And so that's that's really what I do. And um, I'm there to help. And the way I choose to look at it is my job is to support the CEO to be successful. That's my job. I want to do everything possible to make the CEO, because the CEO is the person running the company. It's not me, it's them. And that's all I focus on. In concert, obviously, with the board. And so then I'm kind of a liaison sometimes between the CEO and the board. And I do actually find this quite beneficial. I think every company should have this because you get to hear, you know, see, they say it's lonely at the top with CEOs. And so they get to vent with me. And I think boards get to share things with me in a more, in a manner maybe they wouldn't always share with their specific CEO. But as a, as a good shock absorber, I can kind of listen to both sides, offer some perspectives. And I think that's another important role that, that I play. It just... It's not one of those roles I was conscious of, but over time and doing this a lot, I realized this is very helpful because otherwise you have a board, maybe in some cases that's pissed off at the CEO for the wrong reason, and then you can chant or for the right reason, but then you can channel it in an effective way and vice versa as well. So there's a little bit of, um, of therapy that has to happen as well with the exec chair role. And I enjoy it, by the way. So it's, it's, it's fun because you can see you're making a difference in a situation that otherwise might be a little more dicey. And of all the roles that you've had in your career, John, do you have a favorite? I don't. It's the role of making a difference. So I like, you know, so I'll join companies that I really love and then, and well, I love them all along, but then I realize I'm making less of a difference. And so I have to ask myself, you know, in that role, is it time for me to go do something else or to somehow truncate that role? But, you know, to me that my true north is, am I having fun? Am I enjoying the people I'm working with? Am I contributing? And that can come in all different flavors and it's coming in them all. I'd say right now, the exec chair role is the one that I probably prefer the most. And you'd say, well, why not CEO? And I'd say, oh, because it's so much time. If I didn't have to worry about the time, I'd say I'd probably CEO because I do think that's just such a fun job. But uh, I think you know I'm enjoying being exec chair. And with that, John, I'd like to ask you one more question before our time on today's show is up. You mentioned you want to make a difference and you use also the word contribute. What advice do you have to others about how they can make a difference or contribute? Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons I think a lot of people are drawn to smaller biotech companies, you know, for people that have that mindset, you know, that this isn't just a job, I'm not punching a clock or whatever. I, and so for those of us, I think many of us that get into biotech, that's what we like in the small, you know, the smaller to mid-sized biotech, because you realize you come in and, you know, if you don't show up to work that day, important stuff, you know, often doesn't happen. And so I think it's that environment. I think the other part, obviously, is, uh, you know, for depending upon your level is, you know, look at who you're working for or find people that really can mentor you, that can really also let go and let you run. Again, these are easier said than done. I realize that. You know, sometimes you find yourself, if that's what you think you're signing up for and that isn't what you get. But that's one thing I would vet in terms of the companies I looked for if I was kind of maybe starting, you know, earlier in my career or midpoint in my career is, you know, is this an environment that I can thrive in that looks for people to speak up and contribute? 
And so that's where certainly worked well for me. Thank you, John. And I'd like to thank you for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure having you. I really enjoyed our conversation today. And thank you for all of your support through the years and working together. Thanks, Josh. My pleasure. And to our audience, until next time on Client Corner, keep on building.